every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to Friday. This is the final Money Talk of the week on the 5th of May. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines... The European Central Bank raised interest rates by 25 basis points as widely expected on Thursday, signalling a slowing pace of policy tightening from consecutive half-point rises this year. Borrowing costs in the 20-country eurozone have now reached their highest level since July 2008 following seven consecutive rate increases as the ECB strives to combat high inflation despite ongoing recession risks. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority increased its base rate to a 15-year high of 5.5% after the Federal Reserve raised its key interest rate by 25 basis points. It marks the 10th straight increase over the past 14 months here in Hong Kong. And HKMA Chief Executive Eddie Yu warned local interbank uh, interest rates would rise further. And Mr Yu also cautioned against excessive optimism over rate cuts later this year. Following the latest round of monetary policy tightening in the US and Hong Kong, the biggest commercial banks in Hong Kong said they will raise their prime rates by 12.5 basis points as soon as today. HSBC and its subsidiary Hang Seng Bank will raise their best lending rates to 5.75% starting today. The Bank of China will rise on Monday also to 5.75%. Standard Chartered and the Bank of East Asia have decided to raise their prime rates to 6% from Monday. Beverly Hills-based PacWest is the latest U.S. regional bank on the brink of collapse and is weighing up its options, including a sale. Shares of PacWest plunged over 50% on Thursday on reports that it's considering a breakup or a capital raise. PacWest has about 70 branches, primarily in California, as well as about $44 billion in assets. PacWest said in a statement, it's been approached by several potential partners and investors in a bid to secure a financial lifeline. And it added that these discussions are ongoing. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, Director at Staten Advice. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street Thursday, U.S. stocks closed lower for a fourth day as fears over regional banks escalated. The renewed declines in the banks came after news Wednesday that California-based PacWest had been assessing strategic options, including a breakup or a sale. Shares of PacWest plunged over 50% in New York on Thursday. The KBW Regional Banking Index fell 3.5% to close at its lowest level since November 2020, and that index has lost 35% over the past three months. Arizona-based Western Alliance plunged over 38% and trading was halted several times. Memphis-based lender First Horizon saw its shares collapse 33% after Canada's TD Bank shelved its 13 billion US dollar acquisition of the lender. Zion's Bancor lost 12%. The woes in the banking sector dragged the broader market lower. The S&P 500 slid 0.7%, closing at 4,061. The Dow fell 286 points, or 0.9%, to end at 33,128. The latest decline turned the Dow negative for the year on Thursday, pulling back 0.1% year-to-date. 
The Nasdaq Composite shed half a percent, ending the day at 11,966. After the close, Apple reported second fiscal quarter earnings that beat Wall Street's expectations, driven by stronger-than-anticipated iPhone sales. However, Apple's revenues shrank for a second straight quarter compared with a year ago. Total revenues fell 2.5% year-on-year to $94.8 billion, driven by steep declines in sales of Mac computers and iPads, while net profits were down 3.4% to $24.2 billion. Shares of Apple rose around 2% in after-hours trading. Stock markets in the Asia-Pacific region were mixed on Wednesday after Fed Chairman Jerome Powell ruled out cutting US interest rates because he didn't expect inflation to come down quickly enough. In mainland China, traders returned from a three-day holiday and sent the Shanghai Composite Index 0.8% higher to 3,350. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng was 250 points or 1.3% higher at 19,949. The tech index climbed half a percent. And this morning, futures markets are pointing to falls for Hong Kong stocks at the open. The Hang Seng is expected to start the day around 90 points lower. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's go and welcome our guests on this Friday morning. We have with us Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities. Morning to you, Francis. Right, good morning. And also joining us, Carlos Casanova, who is Senior Asia Economist at UBP. Morning to you, Carlos. Good morning. Well, as we heard there, the European Central Bank has raised interest rates by 25 basis points, as widely expected on Thursday. That signals a slowing pace of policy tightening from consecutive half-point rises this year. The interest rate on the main refinancing operations uh, has increased to 3 3.75% and borrowing costs in the 20 country eurozone are now at their highest level since July 2008. That's after seven consecutive rate increases as the ECB strives to combat high inflation. And um, so Francis and Carlos, no surprise in what we've seen this week uh, from the central banks, both the ECB and the Fed have raised rates as, uh, as expected. The thing is, though, markets are now betting that these rate rises are going to be taken back by July. <laughs> and Fed and ECB officials are adamant that they won't be. So yeah. who's right here? Well, I think the market is getting ahead of itself. I think the uh, market petitioners have been uh, too optimistic. I think the central bankers look at the inflation figures, uh, seeing that they really haven't come down as much they want to. And of course, that that is the um, still the green deal between Russia and Ukraine hasn't been done yet. So if Russia would not go along, then the, the price of grain will shoot up. <laughs> and then inflation will stood up too. So, so we still have to wait and see. Um, I personally feel that um, the market is definitely getting ahead of themselves. Um, in the good news is, in the US, we are going to see a pause. Um, so at least uh, the the pace of uh, of tightening on the Fed side is going to stop. Um, the ECB was very clear that inflation is still too high, uh, real rates are still negative, and conditions are still too accommodative. So they are, in fact, going to continue tightening um, going forward, um, at least, uh, and we expect at least one more time this year. 
before pausing. So, um, you know, is that going to be enough um, to get inflation from 7% down to 2 <laughs> That's <laughs> Pro- a big ask, isn't probably it? Probably <laughs> not. So we are looking at some form of um, policy pivot in 2024. Mm. Uh, but 2023 is definitely a bit ambitious, especially given the drivers of inflation, which um, are, are, are core inflation and services and structural. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, with, uh, with what Francis was mentioning of potential mm-hmm. um, you know, upside risks uh, yeah. on the geopolitical front in the months ahead, that would impact um, the headline number as well. The ECB is further behind, isn't it, compared to the Fed? I mean, the Fed now has got interest rates. They had been negative. They're basically real interest rates are zero now, aren't they? Whereas the ECB has still got a long way to go. That's, that's correct. The Fed is ahead of the curve. I think the only central bank that is, has been more aggressive is New Zealand. Um, so the Fed is ahead. They typically consider cutting rates when real rates are around 1%. And of course, the other side of the congressional mandate coin for the Fed is unemployment, and that has to be usually around five. Mm. So we do think that there's going to be an erosion in aggregate demand in the second and third quarter. Um, In the fourth quarter, we'll have a better sort of idea. And then probably in 2022, the Fed will have those conditions in place to to consider uh, cutting in 2024. But for the ECB, they're they're lagging behind. You know, we're talking uh, terminal rates are are still around or under 4% instead of 5.2%. 5% in the US. So they still have a little bit of uh, a way to catch up. And inflation still climbing in the uh, in the eurozone was at least in the US. Um, mm-hmm. Although it's high, it has come off the peak. Definitely, I think uh, uh, the the number one uh, uh, factor is the price of gasoline is coming down. I think we see the uh, crude oil uh, falling to the $70 level, maybe down to the $60 level. So that, that accounts for quite a lot of the CPI. But the, uh, I think the uh, core problem is still rental. I think in the U.S., the rental market is still very, very tight and uh, rental prices are quite high. That is why the uh, core PCE hasn't fallen yet. What do you think could cause the markets to be right and central banks to have this sudden reversal that the markets are pricing in? Can you see any big risk on the horizon that could cause central banks to to, to pivot like that? Well, I think think, uh, one one reason could be uh, 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 um, uh, the... uh, Recession, looming recession. Uh, you see in the San Francisco and uh, business centers like New York, uh, the office vacancy rate is something like 10% or more. And that signal, uh, well, uh, a slowing corporate hiring. And that is not good for the economy, especially in Silicon Valley, where uh, big tech firms used to hire many, many graduates. Now they're cutting people. That is uh, quite a big change. The Fed is almost expecting a recession, isn't it? It uh, may not want one, but it, it's sort of expecting one. So presumably it would have to be more than just a mild recession to get the central banks to reverse. It's either got to be a deep one or maybe even stagflation. Would that, would that do it? Yeah, yeah, that may do. But, but if another, uh, another bank failure comes along, then the Fed might have to do something else. And uh, that is the other big risk factor in the financial market right now. I I think you're right. So the conditions are going to get tighter, even if the Fed pauses. And the reason for that is uh, banks are going to adjust their um, lending policies. And so lending will be more restrictive. So we are going to see a tightening of credit. Um, and that 
could be enough to push the economy into a recession in mm-hmm. the second and third quarter. Um, the last Fed meeting saw some discrepancies between in, in opinions. Mm-hmm. The governors are still keen on the soft landing scenario, but some of the members um, are talking about recession. Um, nothing points to you know a worst case scenario that would cause the Fed um, to to pivot in 2023. Um, in my opinion, what it would take is a shock to the banking sector. So. The current situation, um, which, by the way, is an ongoing structural issue with deposit rates versus um, money market rates, um, but, but I think they know this and they, 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 they uh, have done their assessments and don't think it will be an issue. But in case uh, there is a negative surprise and spillovers from one of these um, uh, smaller bank uh, defaults uh, affect uh, some of the larger structural or systemic banks in the U.S., I think that could potentially create uh, conditions for an earlier-than-expected Fed pivot. So could this banking crisis, you know, if it escalates, be the thing that does it? Because we've had four regional banks now in the last few weeks go under. That's quite a lot, isn't it? And the fifth uh, is teetering on the brink and there could well be some others. You, you almost wonder, is there going to be much left of the of the regional banks <laughs> in the US by the time this is over? It, it seems that their business model is just unsustainable in this sort of higher interest rate environment. I think the FDIC must do something drastic now, like guaranteeing all deposits before another bank run. I think that the problem facing Pacific West Bank is that the investors just just lost confidence and 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 take the money out. Mm. And uh, no bank can survive a run on deposits, even the, not even the biggest banks. So I think that's the problem of confidence. Mm. I see it slightly differently, actually. I think mm. when you can get a 5% risk-free return in money markets, why would you keep uh, money mm. with some of the smaller <laughs> local banks that offer lower deposit rates? Yeah. That is something that is not easily fixed. Um, yeah. Two things have to happen. Either mm. profitability goes down because deposit rates go up in these small banks. They're paying mm. more f- f- to the clients to hold deposits or uh, interest rates go down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so given this conversation around core inflation, the, the second part of that equation is not possible. So what we are going to see is, um, you know, a, a decline in profitability for U.S. banks and mm-hmm. a tightening of credit conditions that they have to readjust their risk uh, management profiles. I think why people kept those money, their money, put the money originally in regional banks wasn't because um, mm-hmm. of the high deposit rates, because they weren't very high at all. It's because they got preferential treatment for loans, didn't they? They got things like mortgages at mm-hmm. very cheap um, yeah, sort of rates. Right. So that sort of kept wealthy clients at these mm-hmm. banks. But going forward, that's not going to happen anymore. So what would be the rationale now of a, of a regional bank like that? <laughs> well, <laughs> that- that, that's a U.S. tradition that you bank with your regional banks, and that's why the U.S. has uh, many, many more banks than the than other mm-hmm. developed countries. There's uh, there's a problem from history. Uh, most other countries, you only have about ten major banks and very few regional banks. Mm-hmm. But I think that will have. To then we have to change. I think uh, a big consolidation is underway in the US. Yeah, I agree with Francis there. Mm. What about here? The Hong Kong Monetary Authority has increased its base rate to a 15-year high of 5.5%. Uh, that's the 10th straight increase in rates here over the past uh, 14 months. Uh, HKMA Chief Executive Eddie Yu warned that interest rates are going to rise further and he also cautioned against it optimism over rate cuts. And following that, 
local banks raised their uh, prime rates all by 12 and a half basis points either from today or from uh, from Monday. So what is going to be the effect here of rising interest rates? They're getting to, to more restrictive territory now, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think the, the first thing that will be affected will be the property market, mainly the mortgage market, because the mortgage rates are now approaching something like uh, 4% now, much higher than last year. Last year, you have about... Uh, I think at two and a half percent, something like that. So, uh, uh, people will have to pay much more interest right now, and that will, uh, uh, have a negative effect on the property market. Hmm. Yeah, I think property is one thing. Of course, there's been a seven percent rebound in home prices this year. Uh, you know, on the back of that reopening narrative and expectations that demand would pick up massively. I think um, you have to separate different segments of the real estate sector. So those um, that the cater for real local demand, of course, will suffer because with mortgage rates being so high, a lot of people are not going to be willing to pay you know, above bank valuation for, for their homes. Um, so definitely some downside risks there. Maybe not so much on the investment type properties, um, given that there's a bit more uh, connectivity between mainland and Hong Kong. Um, and the other area that I would watch, of course, is um, interbank liquidity. The current situation of the HIBOR-LIBOR differential with the LIBOR being around you know, 5.5 and the, and the HIBOR remaining stubbornly low at 3.6. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Hong Kong may blame the uh, low credit mm-hmm. demand, but I think mm-hmm. part of the reason is also excess liquidity that they haven't uh, been quick enough to mop up. Um, so that situation is, is not sustainable. So we are going to see um, tighter liquidity overall in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. It's either that or we have outflows for, for the first time again, uh, if, if, if that fuels a, a protracted carry trade on the Hong Kong dollar. There's still quite a big differential, isn't there, between high-bore and, and lie-bore. Mm-hmm. So presumably yeah. that aggregate balance could go to zero, could turn negative. What, <laughs> what are the implications of that? Well, well, but the, the chief of monetary authority uh, played down on the risk because I think uh, 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 Hong Kong still has a lot of liquidity in in, in banking deposits. Mm-hmm. Uh, the loan-to-deposit ratio is quite low compared to other uh, major uh, financial centers. So, and of course, Hong Kong government has uh, still have an enormous uh, uh, reserve to, to back up the Hong Kong dollar. He, he was saying, Eddie Yu was saying that even if people are converting, selling the Hong Kong dollar and converting it into US dollars, they were still keeping those US dollars in, in the Hong Kong banking systems yeah, and therefore right. uh, liquidity wasn't actually uh, exiting Hong Kong. Do you think that's the case? Is that true? Well, if, if they want, they can sell the US dollar into Hong Kong dollars. Mm. <laughs> if, they, if, they, if they wanted to. If they yeah. want to, yeah. But also, it's slightly counterintuitive, isn't yeah. it? And the yeah, reason why right. you would convert your money to a foreign currency is because yeah. you want to take it to that country. <laughs> yeah, but but that that is the problem with the, the, the fixed exchange rate. Mm-hmm. It, it's we are seeing um, some arbitrage opportunities uh, with the current imbalance between HIBOR and LIBOR rates. Um, the money is indeed not leaving the system, so no problems there. Um, but of course, uh, whenever the you know Hong Kong dollar hits the weekend of the band, they do have to use uh, foreign reserves to support the peg. Mm-hmm. And that situation, although they have enough foreign reserves, is not sustainable forever. Um, mm-hmm. So with there being a new set of priorities and you know it no longer being as important to keep housing prices inflated forever, I think that the Hong Kong may has an incentive to mop up liquidity. I think we are going to see interest rates.
rates go up, and we are going to see tighter credit overall in Hong Kong as a result, like uh, we are seeing in the U.S. Tell me your thoughts about Hong Kong's economy, because we've had data this week. First of all, the economy expanded 2.7% year on year in the first three months of 2023. So we've exited recession. We had four consecutive quarters of contraction. We also had retail sales data. It jumped by a record 40.9% in March from a year ago. So it looks like we've been exiting a recession on the back of a spending boom. Well, uh, I think the biggest constraint in the Hong Kong economy now is uh, the labor force. Uh, compared with uh, 2018, uh, Hong Kong's labor force actually shrank by 400,000. Mm-hmm. That, that's more than 10% down uh, from uh, five years ago before the riots and things like that. And uh, just over the last two years, the labor force shrank by 150,000. So uh, uh, the airlines are saying that we cannot increase flights out of Hong Kong because we just don't have ground staff, not pilots, <laughs> but mm. ground staff. So, so I think the, the government must do something uh, uh, like uh, maybe import 50,000 people from China to ease the temporary uh, labor shortage because it's hindering the basic services. So, so that's, that is one for the government to do something. Not sure how easy it is to import. I don't know. <laughs> well, the government can do anything now. <laughs> it's not like before. <laughs> it's sort of defying gravity, isn't it? Because yeah. people seem to want to leave and not actually come here. I, I, yeah, I mean, the first half is clearly going to be consumption-led uh, recovery. We saw, in fact, uh, tourism numbers overshoot uh, pre-COVID levels during the Golden Week holiday. They were um, 65% of pre-COVID levels uh, during um, during March, so uh, you, you can you can and retail sales were around thirty uh, percent in the first quarter. So you can only expect that the contribution of private consumption in the second quarter will will be very elevated. Um, we do expect to see our performance in the second quarter as a result. But how long does that last? What we want to see in the second half is a broadening of this economic recovery, uh, a more lively IPO market, a more lively uh, real estate market, mm-hmm. um, and uh, unfortunately it looks like that part of the equation is going to be more complicated. So, mm-hmm. we, you know, I, I, we do expect to see economic recovery pick up from 2.7%. It's going to be a, a relatively good year. But if you look at some of the forecasts out there, you have, uh, you know, the consensus is around 37 mm-hmm. um, and expecting that we are going to go from 27 to 37 on, on base effects alone in the second half. And then mm-hmm. you have some of the more outlandish names, uh, some of the more aggressive U.S. banks uh, that I will not mention, <laughs> uh, <laughs> claiming the economy is going to grow 6% this wow. year um, wow. so I, I, yeah i just uh i curb my my my, op- my enthusiasm for the time being i think we need to see uh some broadening of the recovery in the second quarter before we can assume that um, we, we are going to grow above uh, 3.5 this year for the time being I, I would sort of stay towards the lower end of the government's forecast mm-hmm. the, those base effects that you mentioned i presume they've had a big impact because the situation a year ago was just so dire, wasn't it, that you're comparing this quarter to, that it's not a surprise that GDP has rebounded. It's not a surprise that retail sales have rebounded. They, they almost couldn't go down any more than where they were a year ago. So presumably that's a big impact, but it's a sort of one-off impact. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think as, as you go forward, I think the rate of increase will, will fall. 
Mm. I, I presume also Hong Kong's now it's coming out of recession at a time when um, you've, you've got other headwinds now. You've got slowing world growth. You know, mm-hmm. There's cr- uh, tightening credit um, mm-hmm. overseas. That's all going to act as a, as, a, as a drag on the local economy here. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think uh, 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 take credit and and also uh, you look at one thing. Uh, uh, Apple reported slower sales because the slowdown in the sale of uh, uh, smartphones. Actually, uh, this year uh, sales of smartphones is down something like fifteen percent from last year. Mm-hmm. So, which means. Uh, a big part of the consumption, uh, uh, electronic products, is slowing down. That actually caused uh, uh, factories in China to shut down. And then you have all, all, all these uh, handset suppliers like Sunny Optical and, and uh, Foxconn, etc., uh, uh, reporting very poor results. That, uh, that part of the equation, the export growth from China, from Chinese factories in particular, uh, has not really picked up. And, and this, this is a big worry for the Chinese economy. And, and in turn, it will affect the Hong Kong market. Yeah, correct. I think ex- the external front will remain very weak. I mean, the Hong Kong business cycle is more linked to Chinese, um, the China's Chinese economy than the U.S., but China is not impervious to a, a deeper recession in the U.S. So we have that to look forward to. Mm. Uh, definitely negative um, contribution from net exports. The other risk um, that I would uh, highlight is geopolitical risks. Um, it's proving incredibly difficult to uh, instigate demand for Chinese risk assets among international <laughs> investors yeah. in the current environment. Yeah, Americans are not buying yeah. Chinese. Uh, no, the risk-reward uh, proposition is just not, not attractive mm-hmm. enough. So we, we need to see a very strong earnings-driven cycle in order to entice uh, international investors to, to buy uh, Hong Kong equities. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's probably not going to be a super stellar second half and that's going to drag as well yeah uh, hopefully the uh, investors from uh, the Middle East will pick up the slack <laughs> from the Americans <laughs> <laughs> tell me what you think about the Chinese mainland Chinese economy we've had um, manufacturing slip into contraction both yeah. the official PMI uh-huh. and the Kaishin PMI uh, confirm that however tourism's rebounded over the five day labour holiday number of domestic trips rose by more than two thirds from a year ago and it's now back above pre-pandemic levels yeah. it seems doesn't it that this is it's a rather uneven recovery on the mainland being driven by services like mm-hmm. tourism mm-hmm. like catering eating out mm-hmm. um, but manufacturing's in the doldrums yeah well manufacturing is really more tied to the export market which is slowing down but hopefully uh, the uh, the the officials are counting that uh, domestic consumption, especially uh, tourism, will pick up the slack for the economic growth. And some people were predicting uh, maybe 5.5% growth this year. And if they can achieve it, they will be good enough. Mm. But can this keep the, the economy growing, Carlos? Because tourism and, and related sectors, it's what, about 4.5% of, G- of GDP. So without this, what, what happens so currently we are in a period of strong but uneven economic recovery led by consumption. And I would take that a step further and say that it's led by consumption of services, even over consumption of goods. Mm-hmm. Um, naturally, manufacturing is uh, is not not great, um, both because of the external um, 
pressures that uh, Francis was alluding to, but also because the domestic investment cycle is still very weak. And of course, people are consuming services, not goods. Mm. Um, so the manufacturing remains weak, will remain weak for the first half. Um, there is some hope that... Um, Looser credit conditions, in particular faster credit growth in the first quarter, um, will translate into a pickup in investment. But it takes a few quarters for us to see that. So by end of Q3 and Q4, we should see the broadening of the recovery um, from consumption of services to some investments as well. Um, but we are inevitably going to see a slowdown. We're going to see a faster Q2, uh, thanks also in part to a base effect. And then in the second half of the year, we're going to see a slowing of, of GDP growth uh, to around 5% from, from what we expect will be a very good 8% recovery in the, in, the, in the second quarter. And um, all of the Golden Week uh, figures seem to point in this direction as well. Are we going to see more policy stimulus, do you think? As, uh, as 100%. <laughs> it's, in, in what form? Not the time to be complacent um, for the PBOC. Um, I think they outlined it for us very clearly um, during the National People's Congress. Um, so triple R cuts remain a preferred uh, tool. Um, we, so they, we could see you know, 50 to up to 75 basis points in triple R cuts. They've been very active in injecting liquidity in the system. Um, they've been pushing the banks to extend credit uh, more aggressively. Um, and I am going to be a bit counter uh, consensus here and say that that asymmetric rate cut is still a possibility if we see manufacturing indicators decline more rapidly in the second quarter. Um, it's not going to be a big uh, rate cut, but it will be uh, you know, a, a, an important uh, signal to the market that the government is not uh, uh, looking to uh, you know, stop uh, supporting the economy just because there's a rebound in service consumption. So I think it's important for them to make that message very clear. Okay, well, thank you both very much. Great to hear your thoughts this morning, as always. That's Carlos Casanova, who is Senior Asia Economist at UBP. Francis Lun, who is the CEO of Geo Securities. I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is Director of Staten Advice in Sydney, Australia. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. So we've had a set of um, rate rises this week, some expected, some not so expected. Um, certainly the Fed and the ECB rate rises, uh, 25 basis points, both um, well priced in. Australia surprised, though, didn't it? Raising interest rates, 25 basis points, when it when it's sort of been signalling it was going to pause. Yeah, it was very interesting um, uh, and very much so surprised the market. Almost 90% uh, of, uh, if you reflected in futures prices, would indicate there was going to be no move in rates. And this was after the Reserve Bank had previous month paused on raising rates. Uh, and uh, subsequently, they raised them 25, caught the market off guard. Aussie dollar rallied, stocks, financial stocks got hit a bit. But what was most interesting was, the, as you said, was the, the expectation in the market was driven by the Reserve Bank's commentary. And subsequent to that, what they saw and what they alluded to was that um, in that pause, you saw the banking crisis in the US start to ease off, but I think that could be a debatable topic that we could discuss, um, and that housing prices in Australia had started to peak up again. So there was a concern, I think, of the Reserve Bank that, that the, the message, or at least, hadn't got through and that the economy was still chugging along and that some of the inflationary pressures driven by consumer demand and potentially in house prices were starting to peak up again. So it, it caused them to make a, a move 
to sort of maybe put another hammer into that type of sentiment in Australia. So it was a real surprise. I'm, I'm wondering, we spoke last week about the restructuring of the Reserve Bank of Australia and the criticism that it's faced because it was too slow to raise rates. And in fact, for a while, it was predicting um, rate rises weren't going to rise, uh, rate incre- interest rates weren't going to rise until next year. I'm wondering how much that was in the back of the mind of the RBA and they didn't want to get caught out again and be accused of being behind the curve. Well, I think it's a it's a good point, and I think it feels as if the Reserve Bank can't take a trick at the moment. You know, uh, politically, publicly, uh, everything they do seems to be um, at the against public sentiment and against the government. And I think the government are politicised. To be fair, in a sense, the Reserve Bank is a bit of a scapegoat for what's happened. Having said that, they haven't been good. I don't think in their communication, the Reserve Bank. Um, but I think to to the extent that. Um, I, I think in history, some of these tightening cycles do have pauses in them. And I think a lot of uh, the misread by the market was that the pause meant the end. And I think this is going to be a similar case with the Fed. I think the Fed, you know, when they, they raised 25 and said this might be towards the end, it's possible that you get a pause and then another cycle. Mm-hmm. And it's historically that can happen because what happens is inflation tends to be stickier and what, uh, you know, suddenly it comes off in terms of base effect and it comes off in terms of some of the headline indicators, but ultimately it stays up. It forces the central banks to take another go at it. And I think that's possibly what we're seeing here. And, and of course, over in Europe and the US, um, Jerome Powell is saying that, uh, well, he was signalling, wasn't he, that maybe there was going to be a pause there, or though he did emphasise that that wasn't the decision that the uh, the Fed had made. The ECB mm. clearly has got to go further. It's behind the curve. But what they were both adamant about is there are not going to be rate cuts, which is not what the market is saying. The market is now pricing in uh, that both the Fed and the ECB are going to take back these rate rises by July. Yeah, exactly. I think this is the this is a clear message, uh, and I think this is fairly clear for, from what we see is that um, rates are going to stay higher for longer, mm-hmm. and quite possibly you're not going to see them come off. They're potentially going to have another hike cycle if inflation persists. Um, now that'll be driven probably by the depth of any recession, so uh, that, that happens in the second half of the year if it does at all. So the idea that a soft landing is a good thing potentially um, counterintuitively could lead to higher rates because um, what will stop the reserve and central banks um, uh, hiking rates is, you know, is a sharp recession. Uh, if a slow recession or a soft recession, it might actually mean that they keep their foot on the rates for higher and makes you go into a second cycle. So um, I think, you, yeah, I think it was a clear message from the central banks is that rates are staying high, even if we stop hiking. And of course, the other thing that could cause central banks to suddenly lower rates is a crisis of some some sort. And the thing that stands out is this banking crisis in the US. We've had four regional banks fail now, three in California, one in New York, a fifth one is teetering on the brink. And it looks like there may be others as well. Could this be the thing uh, that forces uh, policymakers to change their mind? Well, I think it's what's most fascinating about uh, this particular banking crisis is the fact that it hasn't gone away and, and how quickly it can move. And this is part of the digital uh, unintended consequences of digital banking to a large extent that mm. you know, deposits can be withdrawn instantaneously. And I think, uh, ironically, I think it's one of the things regulators had not picked up on that this you know, a bank run can happen so quickly. So you saw last night, I think it was PacWest or whatever, or First Horizon, the stocks are down 50% mm. overnight. Um and the ability to withdraw deposits uh, instantaneously is creating effectively the contagion effect. 
because uh, depositors can move quickly before, as they say, the old days, um, you know, you had to line up outside the bank to take your money out. Now it's a click of a button. And so the risk on this type of contagion is that it moves very, very quickly. And so watching it overnight and watching it this week, it certainly raises concern that it's something that's almost impossible to control um, from that perspective, short of, you know, stopping people taking money out of banks. Um, you can, there's only so many times you can you, you can pass a bank off to JP Morgan or uh, the other big banks mm-hmm. in that sense. So, yeah, it is a, it's something to watch and it, it's actually a function of, of the change in way banking is done and the digital economy, which is exacerbating this uh, problem. I, I suppose, though, now when you've had four banks fail and more um, sort of on the edge of the precipice, it, it's no longer an idiosyncratic problem, is it? There is something systemic now that you have to look at in this in the regional banking model. And it looks like maybe these regional banks, uh, their banking model just can't survive this era of higher interest rates. Well, actually, I think it's identified an idiosyncratic risk in banking. Um, the idea that, um, you know, the banks could have prudential amounts of, you know, liquid assets and what have you. But um, the idea of being able to control deposits or having a real on deposits being sticky is no longer relevant in the mm-hmm. digital world, right? So I think this is the idiosyncratic risk that's been identified in this whole thing. And it, it it's, it's exactly the issue now is... Uh, banks uh, models relied on stable deposits as being a function of you know banking people you know most people who deposit money don't move Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. and they leave surplus in there now it's much more mobile and so it changes this risk is now completely different structurally in banking than it was identified by what's happened so it is quite a fascinating topic um and does that mean regional banks uh, can survive in in terms of the business model if they're reliant upon a narrow uh, depositor base and one that's homogenous, right? Which you saw with uh, SVB, you saw that they were, you know, they're all uh, startup type depositors, large cash balances sitting there, but uh, were able to communicate almost effectively with each other instantaneously to withdraw. Mm. And that's a big issue. And it's one that's going to obviously continue into into next week and over the weekend as well. We'll see where we stand yeah, on Monday exactly. morning um, on that. As you say, this is spreading so fast. It's almost like it's, it's spreading across Twitter, isn't it? So Twitter's bringing some of these banks down, you could almost uh, almost argue. I say that a little bit too Well, much. and the sharks, absolutely. You're right, Pete. It's Twitter can drive it. And this is where you get the nefarious elements of the short sellers driving this type of uh, panic. Mm. You know, and you saw it when Credit Suisse went uh, into the deal with UBS that there was an attempt by the short sellers to put Deutsche Bank on the on the on the chop as well. Didn't work, but uh, you know, this is the downside of this thing is that you know suddenly you know the Twitterverse or the social media can suddenly you know become um, actually a nefarious uh, bunch of characters trying to bring down banks, ironically. Mm. So it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting area and one we'd be definitely interested to watch over the weekend. OK, and we'll talk more about this next Friday. I want to completely switch countries. Go to India, a country you know well because uh, you lived there and worked there uh, for, for quite a while. We had data out uh, from India. It showed the services sector grew at the fastest pace in nearly 13 years. A lot of that's being driven by tourism. There's been a real uh, boom in airline travel um, on the uh, Indian subcontinent. Air traffic surged 96% um, in January. The nation's carriers have ordered more than 1,400 um, aircraft. Um, 
uh, Toby, this is uh, this is something that's going to be uh, an ongoing um, feature of the Indian economy, isn't it? It's going to become one of the major tourism markets and certainly one of the, the global airline markets in, in the world going forward. So, in, in fact, it's most fascinating. In my time in India, I never saw an empty plane, uh, you know, uh, and many flights going on domestically, even during the pandemic, uh, because there's such a demand. Um, so the 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 likelihood it's it's the domestic market in and of itself that's going to drive uh, the growth of airline travel and in, you know, domestic tourism more so than international uh, because they have such a big population and you can you can sort of draw a connection maybe with the US over the the long term if you sort of I think I saw that uh, story from BBC that said four hundred fifty six thousand passengers flying in a day in India mm. well, I think in the, in the US it's one it's one point seven million. Uh, and there's 25,000 flights versus sort of 3,000. So India has still got a long way to go. And the issue for India is that it's inevitable that's going to happen because, you know, you can look at the stats in China as well. The, the numbers are off the charts. So inbound from outside of India is probably less relevant uh, in, a, in a scale context to the actual domestic market, which is huge and only going to get bigger. The issue, for, of course, is India is, is infrastructure. Uh, and you mentioned the amount of planes they need to, to order. So double the amount of planes, I think, that are available for commercial flying, plus airports, uh, connectors, all of those things. Um, and that will probably throttle some of that growth. But it's inevitable you'll see a massive uh, increase in airline travel in India. Mm. Um, and, of course, more and more people outside of India traveling into it. But it'll be primarily driven by the domestic market. The statistic that I found interesting was India, which has just over 1.4 billion people, has only 700 commercial aircraft. United Airlines alone mm. flies more aircraft um, than that. So as you say, there's there's an opportunity yes. here for massive investment, isn't there, in infrastructure, new airports, runways, um, buying new aircraft. This presumably could be an interesting investment theme. Well, interestingly, um, uh, one of the names that's been sort of negative in the in the press is Adani. Uh, and Adani own uh, uh, quite a lot of airports in India, and it was one of their investment theses to to buy into airports. So um, you know they've got uh, control over some of the larger airports in in India. Um, so even though they've been on the nose um, uh, in terms of uh, um, uh, the company as a group, uh, their airline business looks like it's a potential winner. So given that, I, I find it odd to hear that Indian Airline Go First has filed for, for bankruptcy. It seems almost impossible for any Indian airline to not thrive at the moment, although it, it was blaming um, failed engines from, from Pratt & Whitney uh, for, for having to ground a lot of its flights. But this all seems very odd. Well, I think in my experience, you know, the, like uh, I think like these countries, there's some good airlines and some not so good airlines. Uh, mm. And in India, you had uh, Vistara, uh, Indigo, uh, in, uh, Air India, uh, you know, uh, some very good brands that do very well. But also, you know, Go India, Spice India, Spice Airlines, a few others. Jet you know, Airways. They're, they're second tier. Jet Airways, some of them are, are probably, you know, uh, they're in the competition, but like with most of those type of businesses, scale and capacity drive results. And I think a lot of them are still trying to, you know, to get enough scale to be able to compete against some of the bigger airlines. And, and hence, you know, you can have uh, much more vulnerability to issues around engines and capacity and things like that. So um, it sounds surprising, but it happens, you know, even in good times, companies go under. I suppose in the case of Go, I mean, it's an ideal opportunity for someone else to maybe take it over um, and, and revitalise oh, yeah, it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure that'll be 
you know, gobbled up by one of the bigger players easily, yeah. Well, Toby, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed for that. That's Toby Lawson, who is director at Staten Advice in Sydney, Australia. Thank you very much for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to look at my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then are Alex Wong, director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Frederick Chu, who is managing director at Magnum Research. With a view from mainland China is Ben Cavender, managing director at the China Research Group. Have a great weekend. Money Talk 